0: and throughout the week saying, hey, why did you give Nathan the really hard one to do? How come he has to talk about sex to everybody and, uh, and you got out of that? Um, well, I, I didn't exactly get out of it. you know. I've just never agreed to do it, ever. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't on the list. You know. There, there wasn't like a list of who will do it and, and which one will it be. Uh, but Nathan actually volunteered uh, in a sort of, kind of, way, Um, and and that volunteering came with the help of Pastor Dave's uh, demanding encouragement, um, so, uh, without further ado, a very difficult subject to, to bring up in the church, our sexuality and what God says about it in His Word, but very needful in our day and hour, and very needful for us as Christians, that we understand what, is, is what God is saying to us about this. Uh, we're, we're only wanting to help you live your life holy and righteous before Him. So, to do that, uh, Nathan is coming, and so I'm very grateful that he's willing to tackle uh, this sort of delicate. Subject. So thank you, Nathan. Come on.
1: This month at Life Church, we are hitting the theme of consecration. Pastor Bill kicked off the series, you remember, by defining consecration as alignment with the holy. Believers in Jesus are already consecrated because of association with Him. Last week, Chris did a fine job reminding us that consecrated lives happen as we grasp the extent of God's love. Today, I'm going to have the sex talk with you. I know what you're thinking. Oh no, it's okay because I'm thinking the same exact thing. This is not an enviable task. Pastor Dave can be a jerk sometimes. In fact, the task calls to mind my brother-in-law who recently sat down with three of his sons, sat them down on the couch to have the talk. The oldest of the sons grabbed every pillow within reach and buried himself under a mountain of them for the duration of the speech. Dad did his duty, relaying the goodness of sex, the basic mechanics of it, and the consequences of doing it outside of marriage. At the end, the son, buried beneath the pillows, said as sarcastically as possible, "'Thanks for the info, Dad!' (laughs) "'Look, I'm not here to explain to you the nature of sex. You're smart. you figured out how it works.'" I'm not going to moralize you. Most of you know the scriptures well enough. You know that scripture forbids extramarital sex, homosexual activity, and a range of more exotic sins. That's not why I'm here. I mean to talk to you about a deeper thing about our deepest beliefs regarding sexuality, about our presuppositions about the place of sexuality in our lives. And this talk will be uncomfortable in its own way, because the Word of God is interested in shining light into the deepest places of your heart. Nevertheless, while this sermon is going to be critical of the core beliefs of our sex-obsessed culture, I want to spend most of the time dwelling on the positive message which comes from Scripture. What we find in our passage today from 1 Corinthians 6 is this message. That consecrated sexuality stems from the foundational reality of our bodies mystically united to Christ's body. As we get the truth about our deepest sexual identity, we will have courage to expose the lies about our libido. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. If you have a Bible there, I'll be reading out of the the, uh, ESV. Translation? First Corinthians six, starting at verse thirteen. Briefly a background to First Corinthians six. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, which is a passionate congregation, if there ever were one. Unfortunately, the church's passion has created all sorts of problems celebrity pastors, disorderliness in worship, lawsuits, even a guy who is betting his stepmother. It has also reached Paul's ear that some church members are visiting local prostitutes, and it seems they're daring to defend the practice. And so we kick in 6.13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Starting with verses 13 and 14, we need to discover this first startling truth about sexuality. Truth number one is this. I need to practice my sexual orientation to Jesus Christ to be truly fulfilled. I need to practice my sexual orientation to Jesus Christ to be truly fulfilled. Shocking, isn't it? Your sexual impulses cannot be fully satisfied through anything but a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus. It may sound like a pious bait and switch, but hear Paul out. Libido, that crazy collection of animal lusts and emotional needs, finds its truest fulfillment in supernatural intimacy with Christ. The Corinthians certainly aren't thinking that way. In verse 13, Paul notes a proverb that some are using. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Food is meant to satisfy the appetite of the stomach, and the stomach is designed to devour food. That's a fancy way of saying this. Sex is natural, dude. Just chill out. With that intonation. Sex is natural. Just enjoy it. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Sex for libido. Libido for sex. By that proverb, some of the Corinthian Christians were trying to justify their sexual practices, including a willingness to visit prostitutes. Paul's response is swift and sharp. But God will destroy both one and the other. The things consumed and the consuming desire are not in God's long term plans. Food and stomachs are not eternal things, which, in context, is not to say that we won't have food and stomachs in eternity. In context, Paul is asserting that sex and libido are not eternal matters, they'll be destroyed. The word destroy is probably not the best translational choice. Um, There's that Greek word there, katargeo, which Paul actually uses a lot. Uh, Elsewhere in Paul, it's translated nullify, or to do away with. Let's go with that. Better to go with the language of doing away, of, of nullification. God will nullify the order of things one day. In our resurrected state, we will not be possessed by earthly appetites. Our ravenousness will be done away with. The resurrection perspective means we cannot take our hunger, in this case, libido, too seriously. Let me put it as sharply as Paul. Your longing for sexual intimacy does not require you to be sexually active to to fulfill it. Just because sex is natural does not mean that practicing it will fill you up in any significant way. I remember thinking as a 12 or 13 year old, barely pubescent, that that, that when I had sex for the first time, it was going to satisfy me for for months, like five or six months. I would just be riding that high for five or six months. Right. Right. You're probably saying something like, more like five or six days, kid. Or there's probably somebody hormonal out there who's like, more like five or six minutes. (laughs) Sex doesn't fulfill any long-range needs or desires. In a day or a week, you'll be just as worked up and agitated and lonely as you were before. This natural cycle is a vicious cycle. So what is the body for, if not for pursuing the sex it so badly wants? Look at the text again. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. It's for the Lord, your body. Your libido, your sexuality is for the Lord. In faith, we are able to claim this truth. We are designed to have bodily fulfillment when we worship him, when we rejoice in him, when we work for his kingdom, when we walk in true spiritual intimacy with him. Now, I'll be honest with you. The Christians who are constantly talking about intimacy with Jesus and getting ecstatic in worship and allegorizing the heck out of Song of Solomon, they kind of weird me out but you know, I respect them. Their bodies are for the Lord. Their libido is nullified and reconstituted. I'm not here to comment on which religious expressions are healthy. My point is to underscore, underscore the Bible's point. A relationship with Jesus is the end goal of our sexual bodies. To understand this passage, one has to keep in mind that Paul's perspective is thoroughly eschatological. That is, it is oriented to the end time, when Christ returns and raises the dead and renews the world. In verse 14, Paul chimes, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul isn't trying to skirt the issue of bodily desires. He's getting us to think about the coming resurrection body, the forever reality of each one of our bodies. Only when we experience the intimacy and health and life of our resurrection bodies will we be fulfilled. The risen body will be capable of spiritual love and communion and ecstasy far more significant than the fleeting bliss of an orgasm. Sadly, resurrection hasn't happened to us yet. But resurrection has happened to Jesus. And it will reach us someday. That is God's promise. And if you know anything about Paul's line of logic in 1 Corinthians and his other letters, you know that the future is never a purely future event. It is always breaking into the present now. Resurrection power is being streamed to us in this age so that we can live righteously even now. By the Holy Spirit, we are now able to live a new kind of life, a future kind of life, a life driven by a fresh orientation. Believing this, truth number one, we can move on to lie number one, which is this. I need to act on my innate sexual orientation to be truly fulfilled. I need to. Don't you hear that? Now folks, we ache for completion. Our bodies long for union. That's what bodies are for, for communication, for communion and union. But if true fulfillment comes through a supernatural communion with Christ, it isn't going to happen by following our innate desires. Orientation to the risen Lord Jesus precludes the path of following our native orientation. I speak in terms of orientation because our culture has decided that orientation is destiny. We should, nay, we must obey our inner disposition. Libido points out the vacuum inside of us needing to be filled. If we don't submit to our orientation, we're told we are being unnatural and untrue to ourselves. This is the rhetoric from the LGBT lobby, of course. Though you realize that men in general have employed this language for many centuries. We say this to each other. Guys are just made to be promiscuous. We're not built for monogamy. Nature tells us to spread our seed. So if we have a lot of partners or slip up and cheat on our wives, we can't be blamed too much. We're just following our nature. And here's the sad thing. A lot of men and a number of women, to be fair, have a promiscuous orientation. Rarely does a day go by when they're not pining for multiple new sexual partners. It is a tough orientation to have, as fulfillment doesn't come easy. What I'm getting to is this the orientation line of reasoning should hold no sway with Christians. We should be perfectly ready to admit that sexual orientation is a real force to be reckoned with, but we also know that orientation can't be trusted. Not just heterosexual and homosexual lusts, but selfishness, stealing, a propensity towards violence. They're our default. Life compounds these tendencies. Whether one is born that way is immaterial. We are all born children of wrath, says Ephesians 1.3. We are all born slaves of sin, Romans 6.17 says. The Gospel teaches us to fulfill our human nature not by following natural innate desires of the body, but by following Jesus Christ who will redeem the body. Let me say that again because it's important. The Gospel teaches us to fulfill our human nature not by following natural innate desires of the body, but by following Jesus Christ who will redeem the body. Until our nature is fully redeemed, natural orientation cannot be trusted. Lest things get too negative, let me pause and state for the record Sex is beautiful. My fatherly sex talk. Sex is beautiful, kids. It's wonderful. Because it is, because it's good. God wanted it to be used for good. It is good. He came up with the idea for His creatures, you realize. Have you ever heard Proverbs 5, 18 and 19? It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. The Bible used the word breasts. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's good stuff. But being dragged along by sexual desires will not lead to fulfillment. Sexual immorality will not fill you up as a human being. Even marital sex, amazing marital sex, is not capable of satiating you because no one, not even your spouse, can meet your deepest needs. It's hard for me to say. Only by following an orientation to the risen Lord Jesus can we begin to live as complete human beings. And so we go to truth number two Sex involves bonds affecting Christ in the church. Does. Sex is a funny thing. As ridiculous as the whole dance is, it's about the closest thing we have to magic. Okay, wrong word in church, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Verses 15 through 17 tell us about the kind of power sex has in forging interpersonal bonds. Verse 15. Do you know, not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Paul is using one of his favorite metaphors here, namely that Christians are parts of Christ's integrated body. We are already attached to him through faith. We're wrapped together in this miraculous organic bundle known as the church. We're a single body. And, and then Paul gets violent with the metaphor, asking if he should rip off members, whole limbs, an organ, perhaps, and and attach it to a harlot. (laughs) I really wanted to get mannequins in here and just rip (laughs) Jesus off. They weren't for sale at Kmart for some reason. That's ridiculous. You can't do that. It may sound absurd to you, and it should. It is freakish to rip a limb off of Christ and to attach it to a prostitute. Yet that is precisely what happens with sexual immorality. Uniting with a prostitute necessarily means damage to unity with Christ. Pulling away from Christ means damage to him. We've all seen the damage of someone cheating on a husband or wife, the kind of psychological ripping that happens. It can very well feel to that person like a limb has been torn off or an organ torn out. Is it any different when a Christian wanders from Christ to get intimate with a prostitute. It hurts him. When Christians pull away from him to throw themselves into sinful intimacy with another, it affects him. It dismembers him. It seems impossible that mere sex, let alone sex with a prostitute, should be able to do this. But it does. God has a high view of sex, and so does Paul. He who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her, in verse 16. Sex is more than just the swapping of bodily fluids. There is a deeper connection at work. The language of joining and one flesh uh, come from Genesis 2.24, where Adam and Eve, the prototypical husband and wife, are united sexually. Physical, emotional, and mystical spiritual attachment happens in sex. This is a fantastic reality for a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage, but it makes for real trouble with any relationship involving less commitment than that. Sex necessarily involves the forging of bonds, even with a harlot. If sex can forge bonds, it can also break them, Paul is saying. Pre-existing spiritual bonds with Christ are threatened when Christians mess around. In verse 17, Paul returns to the deep reality. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You are already joined to Jesus through faith. Not too long ago, some of you were baptized. Your your bodies were, were baptized. They are already baptized. They are identified with him in his death and resurrection. There are spiritual bonds established now. And those spiritual bonds must not be tampered with by the terrible bonds of sexual sin. We would be ignorant to gloss over the corporate dimension in this passage, too. Throughout 1 Corinthians, the language of members and body of Christ, that language alludes to the church as a whole, not just one person's relationship with Christ. When a member of the church goes off and sexually unites with another illicitly, the church feels it. That's a big reason why God prohibited all sorts of sexual relationships in the Old Testament to his chosen people, Israel. That's why he lays out high standards for the New Testament community, for all members, especially elders. Friends, you need to know that your sex life greatly affects life, church. Our pastors shoulder all sorts of grief as they counsel people dealing with the consequences of sexual sin. People don't show up at worship and small groups because they feel dirty from their addictions. You know this, right? Affairs and divorces rattle our fellowship. Why? Because this church is built on covenant faithfulness. How can we be faithful to each other spiritually if we're not faithful sexually? How can we be faithful in our church ministries if we can't be faithful with our genitals? Now, please understand, I do not mean, uh, Pastor Bill does not mean, Pastor Dave does not mean to to heap any shame on you here. And for Pete's sake, please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't keep the bedroom private. The marriage bed is to be kept sacred after all. Get out, okay? Okay? My point here is that we Christians tell the truth about our sexual commitments. Sex is far too powerful to be exercised privately. I appreciate how Will Willimon puts it. We Christians have found that there isn't much way to be faithful, to get close to somebody sexually without destroying them, other than through public promises. And that's what we want to know here at Life Church. Not the details of your sex life, but assurances that you are committed to faithful sexuality, a sexuality that builds up and does not destroy, a sexuality that unites Christ's body and does not render it asunder. Sex affects Christ and his church. And so now we can see lie number two. My sex life isn't anybody else's business. Right? You, you hear this. You read this on Facebook, right? But we can see the falsehood taught to us by our culture. People say that sex lives aren't public in order to respect privacy and facilitate tolerance. All well and good. But when, after a politician's sex scandal, one columnist wrote this, If no laws are being broken, it's none of my concern." there is something more being suggested, namely that sex should be defined in individualistic terms. Sex falls under a rubric of individual enjoyment and therefore personal privacy. It doesn't have any significant public repercussions. Yet the phrase, if no laws are being broken, it's not of my concern, if we look at that carefully, we notice that it's self-defeating. The columnist is saying that a person's sexual practices are only his concern if a law is being broken. But what is a law? The law is the standard of a community. Sex, nobody else's business? Of course it's other people's business. At least the business of the people you're in community with. And since nearly everyone is interwoven into various communities, we must be honest about the people affected by our sexual behavior. American individualism has permitted us and even encouraged us to privatize our sex lives, but nobody really believes that sex isn't of public importance. Our courts are clogged with patrimony suits, palimony suits, and sexual harassment litigation. Our places of employment are paranoid, laying out detailed policies about sex and dating in the workplace. Even unbelievers begin to lose trust in people with sexual entanglements. For example, David Petraeus was forced to resign as director of the CIA after it was determined that he was having an affair with his biographer. Why? Because Petraeus was not in control of his heart. The public knew that. And if he's not in control of his heart, then what is he sharing with his biographer? What is he sharing with other lovers? Are we safe? He's the director of the CIA, after all. He couldn't be trusted anymore, and he knew this, so he resigned. If unbelievers can't swallow the lie about sex being private, we Christians certainly cannot. Our Christian community, with Christ at the center, is affected by each other's sex lives, by each other's faithfulness. But what about one's individual health? Isn't sex good for you? Truth number three is this. Sexual immorality is self-destructive. Plain and simple. Flee from sexual immorality, yells Paul in verse 18. And sadly, there's a lot of sexual immorality to flee from these days, I hate to say. On that score. The New Testament word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. Porneia has traditionally been translated fornication. Fornication. It refers to all sorts of illicit sexual activity, from premarital sex, to incest, to homosexual intimacy, to bestiality, to adultery. In any case, the one who traffics in porneia is called a porne, which is the Greek word for prostitute. A porne participates in porneia, and those who visit a porne participate in porneia. This is, of course, where we get our word pornography. Pornography. Pornography is the business of using prostitutes visually. In Sioux Falls, you won't see many prostitutes working the corner of 41st and Louise, in large part because it's January. (laughs) But I dare say that, though, through communication technologies, we have easier access to prostitutes than ever before in the history of the world. Let's not think that somehow pornea isn't out there because porneas aren't out there. Flee, says the word of God. Flee. Folks, whether with your eyes or with your loins, the Bible is giving a direct order. Get your body out of there. Flee. Do not wander into the red light district trying to fight a battle. Do not stay on a web page with a pornographic banner. Do not spend time with a seductive person in a seductive situation. Flee! Those Those who don't flee end up in sin. A healthy person flees. An unhealthy person commits sexual immorality, And when that happens, the second half of verse 18, this person sins against his own body. Uh, the, The second half of this verse is difficult to interpret, I confess. Paul doesn't spell out what he means here. Is he again referring to the idea that fornication is to violate the body's dedication to the Lord or to the church? Is he referring to STDs? Or is Paul merely noting the toxic, accumulating effects of sexual immorality? The truth reveals the lie. That sexual freedom makes me into a healthy, self-actualized person. Everywhere I turned this last week, all of our c- cultural artifacts. We're saying this loud and clear. What a terrifying contrast the world offers to the biblical perspective. Sexual activity is talked about as a prerequisite for self-actualization. The claim is that sexual encounters make a person powerful, self-aware, enlightened. Having sex gives a person social value. Sex means one chooses and is chosen. In this twisted way, sex is required to make a person into a self. Notice how disparaging sitcoms and movies are towards virgins or those with low sex lives. Steve Carell in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Liz Lemon for much of 30 Rock, April Kepner on Grey's Anatomy, the list goes on. In contrast, mature characters are doing it and doing it often. Sex in the City portrayed women with lives in chaos, utter chaos, but you could hardly charge them with living passive lives. They were self actualizing agents, desiring and desirable, masters of their own destinies, in control. The fallout from the widespread myth of sexual self actualization is horrifying. In a recent study, young adults were interviewed about their first sexual encounter. Sad, but perhaps unsurprising, is that the good majority of young women said that their first was not wanted. This doesn't mean that they were raped. It's that they had sex in order to feel worthy or powerful or loved. The more shocking statistic was this. Most of the young men said the same exact thing. The majority of these young men said that with their first time, they didn't want to have sex. They just wanted to avoid the shame and social powerlessness associated with virginity. The consequences of so-called sexual freedom are ironic, however. Even unbelievers are coming around to this point. GQ magazine just published a piece from a writer who confessed that maybe, just maybe, men were being hurt by so much exposure to hardcore porn. Judging by a study that revealed that a third of young men, we're talking like late 20s here, a third of young men addicted to porn suffered from erectile dysfunction. Their bodies just didn't work sexually anymore. In a related way, non-Christian commentators have noticed that sexual self-expression runs the risk of destroying a stable personality and destroying sexuality itself. Radical feminist Camille Paglia recently wondered how that icon of sexuality, Lady Gaga, ends up being, quote, so calculated and artificial, so clinical and strangely antiseptic, so stripped of genuine eroticism, Gaga, for all her writhing and posturing, is asexual. The same goes for Fifty Shades of Grey, whose sadomasochism demonstrates that self-actualizing sex is doomed to be reduced to a script about power and powerlessness. We Christians already know this. Sex only goes so far as a means of healthy self-expression. And free sex... It's not free. And it is not free. With sexual immorality, we violate our own bodies and devour ourselves. And maybe the reason why Paul only mentions it quickly is because he wants to move on to that positive truth, the thing that we need to rest on. And we pick that up in truth number four. My body belongs. Lord. My body belongs to the Lord. Some of you need to say this all day long. My body belongs to the Lord. Paul gets to the heart of the matter with these final two verses. He asks, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Prostitutes hung out at the pagan temples there in Corinth, but Paul says to the Corinthians, Your body is a temple. because of the switching uh, singular and plural you, because that language is going back and forth, it's hard to tell whether Paul is speaking about each of your individual bodies are temples or the collective body of Christians is a temple. Um, Maybe it doesn't matter here. The point is, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a precious gift. He lives in us now. And we're different people because of it. And the Holy Spirit deserves a holy temple. Amen? You are not your own. In my opinion, Paul gets to the heart of our problem as Americans here. Behind all the lies about our libido is a single cancerous paradigm. We think that we're autonomous individuals. We think that we are self-made men and independent agents. We think our bodies belong to us as our own property. But it's not true, is it? We were given the Holy Spirit from God. We did not make him. We did not summon him. And furthermore, we ourselves are not our own. We belong. We are radically dependent on God for our identities. You just sang about that. Unrestrained sexuality is sin because it tries to circumvent God and claim ownership of our own bodies. Sexual individualism is bankrupt. And if there's that fourth truth, then there's the fourth lie. My body is my own property. My body, my choice. No, says the word of God. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are God's precious possession, body, and all. And folks, I know that I've asked you to process a lot of ideas this morning, but pay attention here. Paul takes the idea of prostitution and flips the commercial metaphor on its head. You went out and bought prostitutes, but Christ bought you. Before you go out and buy another prostitute, consider that you were bought at a price. You bought prostitutes to use them dishonorably. But Jesus Christ bought you so that you might be honored. You bought prostitutes with a credit card or a few dirty bills. But when Christ bought you, he paid his own body and blood as currency hanging on the cross. You bought prostitutes to degrade them for your own pleasure. But Christ bought you, precious one, to consecrate you and to have you experience the pleasure of resurrection life forevermore. You were bought with a price. So honor him with your body.